Okay, welcome back to the new episode of the Lacrosse Thinkers podcast. And today we have Dr. James Zimalak. I am doing it right, right? Zimalak, yeah. Great. Okay, joining us from the political science department to talk about um, negative impacts of expanding public employee religious accommodations, which is a topic I would never thought of to look for for myself. <laughs> so that'll be a really fun, fun conversation because I know nothing about it, but after I read your book, I, now I'm super interested. So before we start anything, uh, James, can you give us a quick walkthrough of your resume? Because you have a very rich uh, journey. All right. Well, thank you much for uh, being able to participate with this. Um, yeah, I guess it is kind of an esoteric topic. Um, I, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever actually purchased the book, um, but there, there is some interest in the topic, uh, especially within the employment context. And, you know, I, was, I wrote this for a practitioner audience primarily, because uh, that's what I come from. So this um, teaching here at UWL is my second, second life, second career. And, you know, I came up through um, as a federal attorney. So um, after law school, I was an active duty judge advocate with the Army for four years. And then I was hired into a newly created position at the Pentagon um, as the dedicated attorney to the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Manpower. And my portfolio was dedicated to equal employment opportunity and um, civil rights law. So uh, what the public doesn't generally understand is within the Army, we have approximately 300,000 civilian employees in addition to the whole uniform side. So, you know, we have um, policies in place, um, programs in place for those civilians. So I was advising in that area. And, you know, that's where my interest in um, religious accommodation came about because I was seeing issues bubbling up. And along the way, I was getting my PhD um, because I did want to transition into teaching. I mean, that really was a big passion. Um, you know, I loved what I was doing at the Pentagon, but you can only do that so long before your life gets ground down and you need to rejuvenate. Um, so, um, as I was pursuing my PhD in public policy, that this was an issue that was coming up in my day job and I wanted to explore a little deeper. And it coincided with this real change in um, religious advocacy, um, advocacy lawyering that I'll talk about a little bit, where you, know, you had a lot of um, issues bubbling up with same-sex marriage um, across the states, some legalizing, we had the constitutional amendment prohibiting same-sex marriage. So it was a very salient issue and it was starting to collide with religious accommodation. And my concern as a public administration professor and as a former administrator is this idea of administrative legitimacy. It's the one thing that we have as administrators that keep, keep the public sort of bought in you know, that they believe in what we do because as public administrators, we're not the elected people. So there's always this kind of legitimacy crisis with the public that you're, you know, you've probably heard the pejorative term unelected bureaucrat, you know, that both parties enjoy bashing the civil service. Uh, so the only thing the civil service has is this ability to 
foster this legitimacy through its actions. And my concern was that there are initiatives to try to change how we accommodate religion. And by doing so, my fear is that it'll create some really negative public perceptions. So um, I did, as part of my research, looking into this more with some of the pending legislation. I completed the PhD, served notice on my job. Well, no, I didn't serve notice until I had the offer and the signed contract from UWL. Resigned from my position, came out here, and now I've been teaching public administration and directing the legal studies program for the past five years. Beautiful. So you mentioned uh, you discovered this topic and become interested in it out of actually it raised from your daily uh, situation. So why are you so worried about this may make a negative impact on the legitimacy of the government of the uh, public administration? Can you give us some stories, like help us to picture? why this is going to hurt that? Well, um, and I'll discuss a little more in general, but there, there were initiatives um, from individuals that were very concerned that the current standard that the government uses to um, determine what accommodation is possible for an employee, um, there's concern that that standard is, it, it, the, the bar is too low for the employer to say, this is an undue burden to accommodate. Um, what it is, it's a de minimis standard. So what is required in the employment context is that you must reasonably accommodate someone's religious beliefs, practices, unless it poses an undue burden, an undue burden being very small. So what lots of advocacy groups were seeing, employers, um, federal government specifically, just saying, undue burden, we're not going to accommodate in that situation. Whereas we have another system where we have to accommodate for disability, that's the complete opposite. The undue burden standard for disability, the bar is super, super high. Um, and it's measured in terms of um, the overall agency's resources. So to say something is an undue burden, you have to look at the overall agency resources and what will the burden be. And in terms of disability, the burden is typically some sort of fiscal burden. You know, you have to buy special computer equipment, something like that. So even if you say, all right, it's gonna be 4,000, 5,000 for the burden of the computer, you know, the Army's budget, DOD's budget pushing a trillion dollars, you can never argue it, so you must provide the accommodation. So the religious advocacy groups saw this standard and said, we need to have that standard for religion. And they got some draft legislation that didn't get passed but kept getting reintroduced that basically said, it works for disability, it'll work for religion, and just grabbing that language and applying it to religion. and you know, as the government attorney, you know, of course, I'm slightly biased in my perceptions. I'm like, no, 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 that if you put that type of a framework onto the current system, you're going to have to accommodate a lot of actions and practices by employees that not only do you disagree with, you might find abhorrent. And if we're suddenly accommodating these things, it's going to turn the public off and turn the public against us and really damage legitimacy. 
you know, an extreme example would be, you know, there's white supremacy has been found to be a religion. You know, it, it meets the standard, you know, sincerely held, you know, they have rules in place. It's a life vision. The courts have found that constitutes religion under the law. So if we change the standard now and pull in, you know, now we can say no with an undue burden because the minimus is easy to prove. If we pull in the standard of like a super high burden, super high financial burden, you're going to have to allow a lot of that white supremacist activity from your employee to occur. So if they have tattoos or um, certain things in their cubicle, you're going to have to allow it. And it sounds insane, but that's the problem where people bring their own perceptions of religion. You know, when you ask someone, what is religion? They're going to first jump to their own personal belief systems, if they have any. And that's what they're going to project then is everybody's view of religion. And that's where these things can conflict. And people can be on board with these changes as being good. Our constitution protects religion without really understanding what am I agreeing to? You know, and that, I raise this in the book is that um, some of the talking points made by Congress and representatives with some of these laws showed they were seeing this as a very narrow thing as religion being, you get to wear a cross necklace, you get to wear a yarmulke in the office, you get to have sundown off Friday for Sabbath or Saturday Sabbath off. That's what they saw as religion. They didn't see it as you can refuse to do your job because you are against facilitating a sin against God. So a school teacher, school teacher says, I will not use the preferred pronouns of the student. You know, that is a sin against God. I am going to use the pronouns associated with their genetic birth, sex. Under the new standard, you have to allow the teacher to do that no matter what the student's reaction is or preference, because, you know, it's not a huge burden to the school. There's no financial burden in doing that. Um, it's very tough to quantify the burden or the damage to the student um, to say with this. So if you're going to change the standard to say it has to be super consequential interference with the mission, it becomes very difficult. So that, that was a real concern of mine with this. And, you know, again, the more narrow parochial vision and, you know, I, I need to separate general accommodations from workplace stuff that I focus on in the book. But my concern is from public administration standpoint, when the third party sees my teacher refusing to acknowledge the preferred pronouns, then they now perceive my school, my being the government school, as somehow, you know, discriminatory, doesn't care about students, where the principle of the school is like, the law has changed, I have to accommodate that. If I don't accommodate that employee, that employee is going to sue us, and we're going to get killed in litigation. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't, if you're the principal. Public hates me. Parents hate me. If I follow them, then I violate the employees' rights and it opens us up to massive litigation. So that that's 
my concern with writing the book is that if society agrees that we need to change the laws on this for general employment, that's one thing, but please consider the civil service and administration is maybe carved out that it, it's, it, it's a much different position than the employees at Best Buy. It, you know, it's my concern, just we have to preserve the administrative legitimacy to function. Interesting. Yeah. Because as a, as a public person, like a normal person, I don't know much about law. I don't know much about anything. Right. So if those kind of thing happened to my kids in school, my first reaction would be like the school doesn't care or anything. Right. I don't, I won't even go to the law level. Just like, wow, actually this is prohibited by the law until some really big thing happened and some, some guy stand out and try to explain the whole thing around. So normal people actually won't know all these kind of things. Right. But you are, you are basically hurting their public image because of the stuff they need to do to follow the law. Right. It's in compliance with the law. I'm going to destroy my legitimacy by complying with the law, which is this perverted result that the public, you know, should be supported, you know, want me to comply with the law. With social media and all this kind of stuff, this only amplifies everything. You do that yeah. thing one time, Facebook, it will be everywhere on Facebook. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I raised that in the book is that in the past when this stuff happened, it was isolated because it's not a news story. Well, the examples I gave would be a news story, but on a, on a much smaller scale. So you have the firefighter that refuses to participate on a fire truck in a parade celebrating gay pride. So the city is like, we're going to put a fire truck in the parade. You just need to drive the fire truck with the parade. And the firefighter says, nope violates my religious beliefs that is me endorsing the homosexual agenda i'm not going to do it well that protest and the firefighter refusing to do it it's not going to get picked up by a newspaper probably or anything else someone recording it someone recording that you know him or her saying i don't support the homosexual agenda you know in a firefighter uniform stuff it's going to get blasted. It's going to go viral. New New York firefighter refused to help. Yeah. You know, and and people all over are going to see that, you know, I have lots of things in the book of very small cases that I was aware of across the country (laughs) because it hit online and got picked up and sent. And, you know, I am not a social media person. I don't use it. at all hardly and i've just had just brief encounters with it and i see how stuff just blows out with people not taking the time to read to think and and that's where it just you know magnifies you know quick story for this weekend we had a cat a stray cat in our yard that we happened to have a little kennel because we transport animals for coolie humane we transported some rabbits so we had a little kennel and everybody in the neighborhood was wondering what to do with the cat. So we said, we're going to take it to Cooley Humane to be claimed. So we put it in the kennel. I took a picture of it to put on the next door app to see, does anybody know who this cat is? First, it didn't have any collars or anything. So we figured we'd take it out to Cooley Humane to see if it was chipped. Had it in the kennel to take out to Cooley Humane in the car. And I got blasted by people online saying, it's you shouldn't own a cat if you're going to keep it in a kennel like that 
And it's like, <sighs> I don't own the cat. I said in the message, you didn't even read, you saw a picture and bam, started typing. Yeah. You didn't even read the three sentences underneath it. And that's my concern. It just, it reminded me of what I wrote here is that someone's going to see something post and then it's just going to start triggering reactions and no one's going to take the time. No one's going to take the yeah. time to figure out what really happened or why. But those kind of power are pretty ridiculous because it's purely emotional, not rational. Yep. Meanwhile, they're so strong. They have such a big impact. Another thing I can think of is whenever I see news like that with those kind of titles, like New York firefighter refused to do something. It's always like, ah, is it an individual thing or is it like a systematic thing? It's just like New York firefighter or just like one guy. Right. And happened to be a New York fire, firefighter refused to do that thing. That's one thing. But now with the thing you just talked about, seems like the individual behavior cannot even be, I won't say controlled, but it cannot even be forced or required by the job. So basically the public agency has nothing to do with his individual behavior anymore, right? Because I, if I think about it, like at least if you are a jerk, you shouldn't be in that firefighter because they have certain kind of right requirement. They actually say, here is your job duty. If you want to be a firefighter, you need to actually do a certain kind of task, no matter you want it or not. Mm -hmm. But now if it's protected by the law, but for me, if I don't know that law, then I'm just going to blame the New York firefighter departments for now training your employee well. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's where there's this tension where, you know, the government is arguing, um, you know, we, you were hired to do certain things that if this is running counter with your personal belief system, then you should seek other employment and not serve the public. You know, you need to yep. go into something else. Um, and their thing, you know, always the response is First Amendment. That's my right. I have a right to religious expression. Um, and it's not your position to interfere with that right. And th that's where these things are always at tension. So especially with th these examples, you know, the thing I focus on in the book is this idea of recusal from your assigned duties. It's not so much this affirmative accommodation, I need Friday off or I need to wear a yarmulke. It's, I'm not gonna do this part of my job because I don't like its impact, what it touches. Um, there's a string of cases of law enforcement um, refusing to um, perform duties related to gambling, abortion centers, and this idea of picking and choosing who you're going to serve and protect, we can't have. We can't, we can't have a police force where people wonder, are they going to show up? It, you know, if I am running a gay bar, do I have to worry that the fire department's going to show up and put the fire out? I mean, that's insane. The, you know, these are things we weren't, and this is a little of my frustration with this. These are things we weren't talking about 15 years ago. And it's because we've had such religious advocacy, um, you know, I don't want to say think, uh, think tanks and certain groups that have taken the cause that want to litigate this in they're using religion and religious accommodation as this affirmative sword to push back against, you know, basically policies that they disagree with. You know, they haven't been able to knock these things down either through the courts um, directly or through the legislature. So the whole idea of same sex marriage 
conservative religious groups have lost that battle. You know, clearly now, you know, the Supreme Court has spoken, but up to that, they've been losing the battle at every turn of like a facial challenge to that. So the tactics have changed and now it's all about, all right, we're not gonna be able to stop that from happening. Now let's shift it to a discussion of protecting my religious freedom. And my religious freedom is not to support, advance, condone that at all. And I am going to argue vociferously that what I'm doing is somehow tangentially related. So if it's Hobby Lobby saying me being forced to provide insurance somehow facilitates birth control abortion, that's the argument that's going to be made. And that's what we're seeing now is the, these arguments of, you know, I might just be against gay marriage or against something, um, but I'm going to attack it through religious accommodation. And we're seeing that today with the pandemic stuff. There's been a ton of lawsuits filed against stay-at-home orders. And it's all about, it's against, um, you know, my religious freedom to have a stay-at-home order. Is that really what's doing it? Most of the litigation is being um, funded and provided by religious advocacy organizations that are conservative religious organizations that are, you know, using this argument of religious freedom to try to knock these down. You know, there's a perfectly fine, I guess, First Amendment right to assemble argument, but they're, you know, they're using the religious argument because it strikes a chord with people. People, you know, this is a very religious country. If you can make it about religious freedom, then people sign on. If you're talking about it as this is something bad that needs to end, such as gay marriage, you don't get the same adherence because we're an individual rights country. It's about my rights. So if I'm not gay myself, it's not going to resonate with me talking about striking down for others. But if you say they're coming after our religious freedom, now I'm like, yeah, I'm on board. Whatever it yeah. takes, let, let, me, let me support that. So, you know, because that's, you always receive simplified message. It's just, are you pro oh, yeah. religious yeah. free? And of course, even I, I'm not religious. I'm just, of course, I'm pro religious free yeah. uh, without knowing actually what you're trying to use this against. Right. You know, we're, we're an individual rights country and we're always going to quickly react to preserving freedoms, you know, speech and guns and, you know, guns, God, you know, the, the, these things very much strike a nerve. So it's easy to get public support without the public saying, well, wait a minute, what are we talking about? Yeah, you know, we saw a lot in the aughts, um, about religious freedom with a lot of the stuff I'm talking about where people were, you know, in the streets saying we need to strengthen religious freedom. And then a group tried to build a mosque in Tennessee and the same exact people said, hell no, no mosque. And it's like, you're just talking about the importance of religious freedom. And it's basically you, know, you can use religious freedom to against anything, including law orders even. Yep. Even I think about that, it's just like any government policy, which asks me to do anything, I can say no. Yep. because I don't want to, and because my religious forbid me to. And that's, that was the challenge um, in the Smith decision. That's, that's a good segue to talk about legislative exemptions for religion versus constitutional. When you talk to the public, the public believes that they have a constitutional exemption for religion. 
and from laws or policies that they find conflicting. Not the case at all. There might be a legislative exemption, but there's no constitutional. And that's the, um, this was decided by the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia, in a decision that his supporters think was just an abomination and they don't know why, um, where Justice Scalia and the court had to look at this issue of you, you had some public employees that participated in a Native American religious ceremony. Um, I don't know if it was, yeah, there, theirs was peyote. It doesn't matter. But um, they had used peyote in the religious ceremony. They got drug tested in their job. They um, drug tested, lost their job. They applied for unemployment benefits. Unemployment was denied because um, they were fired for cause for the drug use. And their argument was the drug use was a part of a religious practice. We're exempted from this. And it got its way up to the Supreme Court. And in a very infamous decision, Scalia said, look, there is no obligation. The Constitution does not mandate religious exemptions from laws of general applicability. So if there's a law or policy that applies you know, without regard to religion. So in this case, it was drug laws. It was a law that said, you don't use peyote. It didn't say, you know, you don't use peyote in religious things. It just said, no peyote, no one, no peyote. Law of general applicability, they violated it. They don't get a religious exemption. People went nuts. You know, Scalia said, you know, if Congress wants to write an exemption into the federal drug laws that say illegal but for religious ceremonies. They have that ability to do that. And I, I disagree with that statement. I think there's some establishment clause issues possibly in certain cases. But he said, you know, you can do this legislatively, but the Constitution doesn't mandate it. So if the law is silent as to being exempted, then the law just gets reviewed under regular rational basis. Did the government have a rational basis for the law? So in their case, they were challenging the law. Courts looked at it and said, government has rational basis in banning the use of peyote, you lose. People went nuts. They said, this is a, just a full out assault on religious freedom. And from that, we get the Religious Freedom Restoration Act which was near unanimously approved by the Senate because it's political red meat, you know, bipartisan support. I support religion. No one's going to come out against religion. None of those senators knew what they were approving. Basically the law put a super high standard now and says for government actions, if it has a substantial impact on religion, even if it doesn't target religion, if it substantially impacts religion, government has to meet a much higher standard, this compelling need. Um, so widely supported. Fast forward a few years, we have Hobby Lobby. It's, you know, nothing was decided under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It got struck down as to the states. It just was in dormant. Nobody paid attention until Hobby Lobby comes out. And Hobby Lobby under the act strikes down um, the mandate for um, contraception coverage and people went nuts saying RIFRA is insane. And 
of course, you had a handful of senators that had voted for RIFRA. Now we're like, this is insane. And it's like the law did exactly what it said it was going to do. It wasn't like, well, that's a weird application of RIFRA. It was totally predictable. And yet now they're all offended. This is the greatest travesty. It's like, all right, so are these crocodile tears now, or did you just not read it then? Or, you know, when were you playing politics now or then? You know, and that's that's the frustration with this stuff uh, is that it, it's hard to impede or regulate with religion because it is it's a strong constituency and it's a strong constituency that votes. Um, so people are very reluctant to take it on. So I talk about my book, um, sort of an analog to RIFRA was this Workplace Religious Freedom Act, which would have adopted the disability standard and raised it. And it was curious that always had huge bipartisan support because the proponents of it really drummed up public support. So the political support on the front when it's introduced, yep, we're there, we're there, we're there never comes to a floor vote, never comes to a floor vote. So it'll, because the business community, Chamber of Commerce blasted it, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission who's in charge with enforcing this stuff, everybody that knew what it meant was totally against it. The only people for it were the people that didn't really know what it would do. Congress knew what it would really, a lot of them knew what it would really do. Commerce, Chamber of Commerce talked to them. So they tried to have it both ways. It, Actually, they did. They got away with it for 14 years. They would keep introducing it, talk about how much they supported it, and it never came to a floor vote. Public doesn't understand floor votes versus you talking on TV saying how much you want to vote for it, but you just don't have the chance. And they got away with it. So it just sort of lingered out there, but that was kind of the workplace analog. So as I said, you don't have this constitutional mandate to accommodate but certain laws do. So the Workplace Religious Freedom Act would modify Title VII. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act applies to employment, both government and private. Um, so in those situations, it would say, hey, you, you can't just say, this is gonna cost me a hundred bucks to accommodate your religion, undue burden. Now you're gonna have to like show substantial burden before saying no. And that's what the religious groups wanted, but they just still haven't got. So yeah, I can I can imagine how hard it is for the employer to show those kind of things because a lot of things are just so hard to quantify. Oh yeah, right. And also, they they have they may have a long term, like cost compared to just what I have right now. Yeah. So you know, as a society, we want to quantify, um, and you know, no no offense to your profession. Um, uh, <laughs> But, you know, I'm a qualitative researcher. I believe in qualitative measures. Courts hate qualitative measures because there's just this level of uncertainty. Um, you know, as, uh, you know, as a practicing attorney for almost 20 years, I loved numbers. As an attorney, I loved quantitative stuff because, I, you know, we would say we can always beat the numbers to say whatever we want. You know, that numbers are so easy to manipulate as an attorney it's the qualitative facts and statements of people it's much harder and with this stuff um you know trying to to quantify burdens that are qualitative burdens very very hard so you know again my whole thing is 
diminished public acceptance of your organization is a burden. So when the parents view the teacher misusing pronouns and suddenly takes a, a much lesser view of our school and maybe is now considering like in Wisconsin, you can choose your schools. So now as a principal, do I have to worry about parents now electing to have their kid go somewhere else because they view my school as you know, sort of discriminatory. How, how do I show that? How do I show that to a court? Because I'm going to tell this teacher or I'm going to fire them. They're going to sue me. And now I'm going to have to say this was my burden. At the current standard, that's easy to show. All I need is one parent to come in and say I moved my kid. But at the super high level, how do I get that? Now do I have to, as a part of litigation, talk to all the parents that move kids and say, why did you move your kids? Here's a survey. You know, what do you think of me? Here's a public opinion poll. What do you think of us now? How do I do that? You know, common sense would say, this is not good for you. But the courts can't operate on that. They can't take judicial notice that, yeah, that, that's going to hurt you. You got to bring evidence. And how, how do you do that? You know, it, it's very, very hard. Although common sense would tell you it's negative. And, and then, you know, we know what de minimis is, but what is substantial undue burden? De minimis is easy. Floors are easy to figure out. The C, you know, this heightened standard, I don't know what that is. So until there's a bunch of case law, how do I know what that is? How do I know what that is as a principal, as an employer? What, how do I figure that out? Um, that's really, really hard. So yeah, that, that, that's a big challenge with this. But getting back to some of the other stuff, you know, <laughs> we're already quite a bit into this discussion and we've glossed over what's religion. And, yeah. and that's, that's this bigger challenge with all this stuff is that, as, as I said, the legislative support for these things is great because they know there's public support for it. But no one stops to say, well, wait a minute, what are we talking about accommodating? Well, we're talking about religion. Well, you know, it's because so many people have an idea in their head of what religion is, no one stops to actually define it. And, you know, it's just hilarious that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, I shouldn't even have to look at this, religious exercise includes any exercise of religion. That's out of the statute. That's the statutory definition of religious exercise. Before you we dive into that, that's actually a very interesting topic. But just, I want to just mention that a, a really direct comparison is religious with uh, disability. Because for disability, you clearly have a list. It may be a long list. Yep. It may be a short list. Yep. But as time goes by, we may add to that list for more and more kinds of disabilities, losing or tightening the requirement. So before I read your book, my understanding will be, wow, there, here's a list of what counts as religion. The matter is like a lot of people believe it, or only a few people believe it, but it's almost like you need to register as a record so that, well, this is considered to be a religion, and you just see anything on this list got accommodated, anything not on this list not got accommodated. But after reading your book, it's nuts. So please go ahead yeah. and try to tell us the story there. What is religion? Yeah, so you know the, the 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 challenge with this it goes back to our constitution um 
and, and when I teach this in class, you know, I talk about, you know, we have the First Amendment, you know, Congress will make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so there's always this establishment issue hanging out there that people, you know, everyone's like, well, we're just talking about free exercise. We're not talking about establishment. Establishment's what sets the table here and creates all the problems. You know, I, I'm not a fan of Congress as a public administrator. I'm a fan of administration, the executive branch. Um, and I always pick on Congress for taking the easy way out. In this case, it may look like they took the easy way out, but they took the only legal answer way out. Because if Congress puts in the statute anything more definite about what religious exercise is, if they define it, they've established it. And it immediately violates the First Amendment. And that's where you have this huge conundrum when we're talking about religion. So as you said, I can define disability and not get into a constitutional issue there. Although a lot of the back history on the Americans Disability Act, um, it, it's you know um, a significant, anything that significantly interferes with a life activity, of a significant life activity. No one knows what that means. So um, over the years, the, the realm of disability has exploded. You know, the original intent was that it thought, they thought it only applied to small things. Um, but now you have, you know, obesity, um, fragrance sensitivity, all sorts of things. So yeah, you can delineate it, but the list just keeps getting longer. So as a manager, even there, you have issues with what's the list today. Um, but getting back to the religion side is that you can't, you can't start to put a frame, too much of a framework on it because you're going to run afoul of the establishment clause. But if people are going to sue for their rights, a court has to adjudicate it. So, and there has to be some sort of notice. So with legislative exemptions, so we're not talking about just straight on challenges to laws. So, um, in the employment context, you have an obligation to accommodate your employees. You need, as a supervisor, I need some sort of guidance as to what this means. And, and that's where the development of this, um, in relative terms, is fairly recent. Because, you know, Constitution, going back 1789, whatever it is, um, this litigation starts out of Vietnam era as to getting into these notions, you know, and part of this has become, as we become more pluralistic, and as we've started to use religion as a way to knock down public policy, it's become far more salient. You just didn't, you had no, hardly any litigation on this stuff up until Vietnam War on free exercise, a couple of cases, the Yoder case being a um, widely known case um, with the Amish community, but for the most part, not, huge problems. Vietnam, you had conscientious objection and the cards, you know, basically you had to like check Quaker against war, something very specific, Seventh-day Adventist. Um, and we had two individuals, Seeger and Welsh, both fought the draft and they, the stuff they put on their draft cards indicated they were against killing, 
but they weren't a part of any of these recognized religions. So the, the, their cases come up, and now there's another conundrum for the court with the Establishment Clause, is that, well, we've created exemptions for the religious, but what about these individuals that have this you know, strongly held moral objection to war? This idea of conscience, conscience versus religion. Are we going to say conscience isn't covered, religion is? And there are, there are several scholars that say the Constitution's clear. So constitutional literalists, originalists say the Constitution says religion. It doesn't say religion and conscience. Some argue conscience is a component of religion, or religion's a component of conscience, you know, going all over. So there was this challenge that should conscience be treated the same as religion? And, you know, the fear from Justice Harlan was, well, if we say no here, then we have an establishment clause religion because now we're saying if you're morally opposed to war, too bad, so sad, you got to go. But if you can show that you're a member of such and such church, then you get to stay. That's giving special privileges to the church that aren't enjoyed by others. You are establishing religion. That's an excessive entanglement. You're advancing religion by doing that. There were going to be problems. So what the Supreme Court ends up saying with this is in Seeger, the test is, you know, whether it's a religious belief is whether it is sincerely and meaningfully meaningful, occupying a place in the life of its possessor parallel to that filled by the orthodox belief in God of one who clearly qualifies. So it's this sort of, are, are you kind of adjacent to religion? And then Welsh gets at this notion of sincerity and it says sincerity must stem from the registrant's moral, ethical, or religious beliefs about what is right and wrong. And these beliefs must be held with the strength of traditional religious convictions. So again, trying to analogize the belief system to something, does it kind of look and smell like religion? If it does, we're there, you qualify. So Seeger and Welsh, they said, yep, you're, you're close, you're there. The trick, the, the problem is, you know, it, are you too philosophical versus religious? That's a really tricky area. Fortunately, we started to get some greater clarification from the courts and um, a very famous case out of the Third Circuit. The judge tries to get a little more concrete and it's this getting at this ultimate question. Um, so, um, philosophy of religion, um, you have um, Tillich and others getting at this idea of, are you trying to answer like these ultimate questions with your belief system of, of our existence of life? If what you're talking about is tied to answering these ultimate questions, then I'm, I'm more comfortable with saying we are talking about religion, of what you're doing is religion. And then he also got it, you know, looking at kind of, um, you know, the accoutrements of religion. You know, do you have structure in some of the other courts of, you know, do you, do you have like a religious 
writings or teachings or something like that to, to indicate more of what religion is. But that really isn't super clear either. So what I operated under as the legal advisor in talking to my leaders is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, who is kind of the arbiter. They issue the regulations, the clarifying guidance on um, Title VII. So if there is such a thing as a subject matter expert in this country on what Title VII says, it's the EEOC. So the EEOC had to come up with guidance to give folks, you know, if you're going to file a complaint that you weren't accommodated, this is what you're going to have to show as to this notion of religion. And what they say is religion includes moral or ethical beliefs. So right off the bat, moral or ethical, it, it's kind of conscience plus. We're, you know, this is pretty broad as to what is right and wrong. So as to what is right and wrong, this is less than, you know, maybe ultimate questions of your existence. It's getting to whether you object to something, whether you're morally against it, um, which are sincerely held, sincerely held, totally loaded um, phrase as to what that means, with the strength of traditional religious views. So fairly broad, and the big caveat to this, which is causing um, a lot of litigation too, is that the belief or practice does not have to be mandated by a church to be considered religious. The standard is sincerely held. So if what you're talking about, I refuse to do such and such because it violates um, my belief that animals shouldn't be killed. So veganism. I'm a vegan, I'm a person vegan, you know, if the person says I'm a vegan because, you know, I believe all of creatures and um, are equal and we shouldn't kill other living creatures. And I live my life this way, I don't eat living creatures. That fits this. That is religion. The courts, veganism pretty much now is universally, um, considered religion. So is it, is it this ultimate concern? Maybe not so much that the Third Circuit was getting at it. It might be a little more narrow. It's just this, you know, I want to say it's a single topic religion, but it's this idea that, you know, you're not going to kill another living creature type thing. That's religion. If I talk to a lot of very strong, you know, if I talk to a Pentecostal Christian and said, is veganism the same as your religion? I'd be like, no, not at all. A lot of people, if I said, is veganism religion? They're like, no, not at all. So, you know, people aren't thinking about more of these non-traditional belief systems as being religion. And then this idea of mixing, um, it comes up most often in prison litigation, just because prisoners have time and prison food is bad, but you'll have prisoners that are constantly saying, well, I need a kosher meal. I need a halal meal. So um, I've never been incarcerated, but apparently kosher meals and halal meals are better. They tend to be fresher um, food. So prisoners will say, 
my religion says, you know, I am um, Christian and I need to have a kosher meal. So there were some prisoners that said this and, you know, were sincerely held saying, I need it as part of my belief. I've incorporated kosher meals into my belief system. And the wards are like, nope, no, you're just, that, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm a Christian. I know it's required. Kosher is Jewish. You're not Jewish. You don't get it. And they deny it. Then they lose those cases. You know, as long as the prisoner says, in my belief system, I've incorporated it, it's religion. And, you know, Pew, Pew surveys have found that, you know, the, the, there's widespread sharing and melding of religious tenets now. So people are exploring religions and finding things and aspects of different organized religions that they like, and they're incorporating it into what they believe. Um, there's prisoners, there's other prisoner cases that where they write their own Bible. You know, just based on what they've pulled from other things, they write a Bible and say, this is my life plan and my guidance. That's religion. So it's a religion of one. So, so getting back to your point person, earlier, like but, authority to just explain, because you, you you basically how to say get rid of the authority now. It's like if it's Christian, you need to have a, for example, like like a really professional person who holds those kind of beliefs to interpret if this is or not. Now you say no, as long as I my personal interpretation is working, and you need to respect that. And I also read another case in your book is some guy who actually always believed he holds some kind of religion and turns out he was studying, he was studying the wrong thing. But now be, because he has done the wrong thing so long, for such a long time, he started to believe the wrong thing. And then, they still think it's a, it's a religion, even though you totally believed the wrong direction of the thing you claim you, to, you believe. As long as it's sincerely held. And how do, you, how do you assess that, like sincerely held? And, and that's that's the challenge. And that that'll be the challenge. You know, I, I talk about this is that if you do change the standard and raise the burden, um, right now, employers don't challenge whether it's sincerely held because they can just skip to the end and say, well, whether it's religion or not, it's a undue. It's more than a de minimis burden, so I'm going to say no. Hmm. So they just skip over it. So we don't have any case law. If the cha standard changes and the burden standard goes up, now I have to challenge the first part. So I'm no longer going to say it's an undue burden. I'm going to hit the front part and say it's not sincerely held religion. That's tricky. That mm -hmm. is that sincerely held, you know, this gets at um, some of the sociology, criminology work with assessing um, witnesses and policing and stuff. Are they lying or not? Um, expert witnesses it might require, you know, friends of the individual that, um, you know, you saw them eating, doing whatever that they're saying now they can't do. The problem with this is we're in litigation. You know, that's part of the point I wanted to make with the book is, you know, a lot of these cases, the employer's going to win. The point is you had to litigate it. That's a lost cost. It's a disruption to the workplace, having to litigate it. So we need to be more careful on the front end to try to keep the litigation down. But the sincerely held stuff, um, you know, I include just an absolute ridiculous example in the book with um, 
ramen noodles um, with a prisoner that the individual wanted um, a certain meal on the weekends when cafeterias shut down um, and the prison was saying no and they're saying well I need to have this type of I forgot kosher or something um, and they were saying your beliefs aren't sincerely held because you're not keeping the Sabbath you use um, electricity the hot water to oh they wanted the ramen noodle to heat the ramen noodles and they're like you're not keeping Sabbath because the electric like the microwave and you know the person then is getting back and forth saying no I'm allowed to use the hot water because it's not a direct spark and then they have rabbis coming in as expert witnesses and you know the judge is like it doesn't matter what the rabbi says is an expert witness it's what the person sincerely believes and then they attack saying you're not um, keeping orthodox because the um, ramen noodles say they contain shellfish shellfish you're not keeping kosher you're not orthodox he comes back and says ah i know that that's why i throw out the spice packet of the ramen noodles and just eat the you know you have a day's worth of litigation over the ramen noodles trying to knock it down that's the craziness with this and, and again yeah it just it gets back to the sincerely held so actually i'd like to um share some examples that I have on um, screen to just talk about some more that people aren't thinking about, if that's okay. Yeah, please go ahead. I cannot share screen because that is disabled. Oh, hold on a second. Let's see if I can do it. Multiple participant. Try again. Okay. There we go. Sorry about that. All right, so what I've put up on the screen are just some examples of things that may come up, you know, either the government employment setting or in general, that pose some really serious challenges that at first blush people would look at and say, I don't see the religion issue here. Because again, and we're not talking about abortion or something like that. Um, so just, you know, quickly in the top left, um, Mr. Cresswell sued the state of Oklahoma, refusing to put this plate on his car. And his argument okay. was he is um, an evangelical Christian, and by putting this on his car, it's forcing him to support paganism. And, you know, I read this case when it first came out, and I'm like, I, I don't understand. I don't see the issue. And he, this is a famous sculpture on the license plate of a Native American faith healer. So we have a case here, and this is what I get at with this notion of complicity claims. You know, how many steps removed can you still be and be considered as committing the sin? So Mr. Cresswell says, by putting this on my car, I'm complicit with the sin of paganism and false idols. Most people would say, I don't know if putting a license plate on your car is going to do it. This thing went up and down. Um, there were federal courts that ruled in his favor that agreed with him, reversed, up, down, up, down. Finally, the court said, Mr. Cresswell, you lose. Um, the state of Oklahoma at that point had 750000 in legal fees. Gone. Hmm. 
non-recoverable for something like that. Um, the um, injection, the vaccines, um, vegans are challenging vaccines now because vaccines are grown in um, amniotic fluid of eggs. So there's been cases where nurses are refusing to get vaccinated for the flu because they're vegans and the hospitals are losing. So the courts are saying public health, you take a subordinate position to the individual's religious rights. So in the earlier cases, pre-pandemic, they said, you know, just make the nurse wear a mask. You know, so this is my issue with, you know, now is we see the religious stuff coming out. Once we get a vaccine for coronavirus, if we do, you're going to have groups saying, not going to have it. We're already in an anti-vaxxer thing, and they're going to come at it on religious grounds. So how effective can it be? Um, the card is a pronoun card for transgender students, and um, that's always going to be a challenge of, again, from the religious employee standpoint, if you force me to use a different pronoun than what I see when I look at the individual, that's an affront to God. I'm in trouble. The AK, this was a ridiculous case, but again, the government had to defend it. Um, Sikh religion, they're allowed to, in their religion, the males must defend themselves. They carry a kirpan, a small knife. The knife has been held, even though it's a threat in a lot of places, that must be accommodated. In this case, um, the individual said the rule applies to semi-automatic weapons and I need to be exempted from bans on semi-automatic weapons because my Sikh religion says I need to protect myself. In this case, he was citing the Wisconsin case where um, there was the you know, mass shooting at the Sikh temple in Milwaukee. But again, people don't think about that. The five pound note in the UK, litigation on that, the dyes on the five pound note contain tallow, the vegans refuse to touch it. So there's a huge litigation issue with that. Below that, handing out sandwiches. Um, Philadelphia and some other cities were banning the handing out of sandwiches on health safety issues in parks to the homeless and things like that. The individual successfully argued this ministry of handing out food to the poor is a part of our religious belief that must be accommodated. The courts agree. Next to that, stewardess, um, we have cases now, um, Muslims refusing to touch alcohol. So again, getting into this issue, this isn't in the government setting, but think about it. You're on an airplane, people are ordering drinks, the person orders a thing of wine, now the person the flight attendant says, I'm not going to serve you. I have to go get another flight attendant to serve you. How disruptive that is. But how does the airline quantify that? Um, grocery stores in the UK, Sainsbury was getting sued. Um, Muslim checkout clerks. If the person came through and had wine or something in their groceries, they walked away and stopped checking them out and waited for someone to finish checking them out, and then they would do the next person. Highly, highly disruptive. Um, Somali taxi drivers not allowing females in the front seat, you know, story after story. If these are things now organizations have to accommodate if the rules change that will be highly disruptive to the organization. The symbol above it, the W, that's creativity movement, that's white supremacy, that's religion. 
to the right of the flight attendant, Rastafarianism, that was found to have been um, a teen up in Twin Cities, got picked up for a pot pipe with the Rasta colors, and he said his Rastafarian religion said he had to carry it. And the judge overruled the drug paraphernalia law saying, yep, you're right. And then the um, ID card in the scanner, this is going to be another issue with pandemic. Um, these are things that having an ID card with a barcode on it, I think most employers are not going to see a big issue there. Um, there's a barcode on my ID card. We have barcodes on lots of stuff. To Pentecostals, evangelical Christians, that's mark of the beast. That's a really serious issue. And they will not allow any type of mark of the beast, you know, recognition. So biometric scanners, ID cards with barcodes, um, these employees are objecting and refuse to have this. Um, some have challenged social security numbers as mark of the beast. They've lost those cases. Um, but going forward with pandemic, you know, if we get into um, tracing, if we get into this notion of an antibody passport to say, you know, here's proof that you've had it before, there's going to be huge blowback because um, some are already arguing that's mark of the beast. Um, we can't be doing that. There's pushback now on, you know, those um, one individual um, in the Ohio House, Nino Vitale or whatever masks just wearing masks he says covers up god's creation that goes against the religious teachings you're not allowed to hide god's creation he wants a religious exemption from wearing masks and you know there's already this obviously masks. all this stuff has become so politicized again this is where the religious advocacy is coming in that you don't like a policy you're now spinning it and shoehorning a religious aspect into it to knock it down and my concern is in the workplace anyways, if we change the rules, you have to accommodate all this stuff. You know, so if you're an employer and you're trying to get anybody testing on your employees, you might have a bunch to say no. You know, we come back to teach in the fall, the state of Wisconsin might want to be like, let's test all the faculty members and students to see who's had it, who's got antibodies. You know, what, what if you have, you know, a fifth of the population saying no, religious objection, and you're stuck with that? It's, it's going to be very hard to implement some of those public health policies. Um, but they, these are just some of the things that, again, most people don't really think about. Um, these are more extreme examples. Um, the states with licenses have, have found it's a no-win situation to try to push back. So the Arizona license, that's Flying Spaghetti Monster, um, the response to the intelligence design community where they have to wear colanders for official pictures. Um, it, it's all made to mock religious accommodation, but they're sincere with their mockery. Um, you know, there's a question of whether this would really fit, but at this point, the states are just like, hands up. I'm not even going to try to fight this anymore. So he gets his license with the colander on his head. The main license, that's paganism. Paganism is clearly religion. Um, so he says part of his pagan belief, he has to wear the goat horns. Um, that, you know, if you're a lawyer in Maine and they come in, this is ridiculous. You're like, no, no, that, that's well-settled law. And then the gentleman on the right, church body modification, um, that's been held to be religious. Uh, this idea of, um, you know, 
sort of the opposite of the mask argument that, you know, it's your religion to modify God's creation, whatever. Um, and this, this was litigated heavily um, against Costco um, in, in a case with that. So, you know, the, the point with these is just to show that th there's a, a ton of litigation. So the attorney in me is, you know, always litigation first, you know, trying to protect my client from this. And that even if I can win at the end of the day, it's still going to be hugely disruptive to the organization. And then from the public standpoint, you know, my point is, you know, when you're loudly saying, yes, we need to protect religion, know what it might mean. Know that it's, it's far more expansive than what you see when I say religion. You know, you need to step back and understand it's way wider. And if you start to say, well, we will just write the rules then to not include all that fringe stuff. You can't, that's illegal. That's an establishment clause issue. You can't write that stuff out. So we have the sincerely held standard. That's gonna be it. So yes, you have a religion of one and that's what Scalia warned against. And he said very clearly, you're gonna let people become laws unto themselves if you start monkeying with this stuff. And that's what we're starting to see. And, and again, that's what worries me now. You know, I was worried as the administrator, but now with the pandemic response, now my own personal health is on the line, that we have people becoming laws unto themselves and saying, it's about me. Um, it's not about the community or something greater. And that, that's really scary. No, I'm not a law expert, expert, but is it possible to just write on your job description like, if you want to work at our hospital, you will be dealing with abortions. So apply the job if you agree, or don't apply if you don't agree. Nope. <laughs> you, you'd be, so you so they have trouble be, fast with that. <laughs> okay, so it's equal employment, something like that, yeah. right? So yeah, you can't even so ask you that. To, you have to hire them, and they came in even though they know they will be handling this, and then they will actually file a accommodation. Just say, even though I was hired to do this, I don't want to do this. So deal with it. Yeah. I don't care how much money it's going to cost you as long as it's the abortion, burden. You know, and the abortion is actually a little unique because they actually have additional laws um, protecting conscience in that realm. Yeah, but just anything like you ask people to perform. Right. Like my, my, my religion doesn't allow me to touch a pipe. But so now again, I'm a this, is, this is the issue now that because of the de minimis standard, I could say, well, too bad you lose your job. So under the current law, I can deny the accommodation because it's more than a de minimis burden. You know, you're, okay. if you're going to suddenly not perform, you know, even 3% of your job, that's more than de minimis. I can say no. And the reason why we have a de minimis standard is because of establishment clause. So again, it goes back, establishment clause is like this thing looming over all this that if I, if I say there has to, we have to accommodate all this stuff and it has to be a greater burden, then we're privileging religion over non-religion, which the yeah. establishment clause has said we can't do. Now, the tricky thing with this is we have a current court that says, that's not what the establishment clause says. The establishment clause just says, you cannot pick an individual religion. You can still favor religion over non-religion. You just can't pick a religion. That's a view of several of the justices. 
others and I'm in the other legal camp that it's, no, you can't favor religion over non-religion, but they're pushing to get the law, the, you know, constitutional jurisprudence changed on that to say, no, 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 we're just talking about picking a specific winner. So if that's your view on the establishment clause, then you can do this expanded obligation and still have it constitutionally sound. The other camp's going to say, no, you go above more than de minimis burden, you're privileging religion that can't stand. So that's why we've had for so long this de minimis test different from disability because of the establishment clause. Um, so uh, again, under today's law, um, and most under the federal system, you can say no. Um, I mentioned the Mississippi law. So states now, because they've seen no movement at the federal level, states are doing it themselves. And that's where there's a really scary frontier with this, especially from the government angle. So Mississippi, in response to Obergefell, which um, prevented prohibitations on um, same-sex marriage, Mississippi said, all right, we've had it with the same-sex marriage, this transgender stuff. And they said, you cannot penalize, government cannot penalize anybody for their sincerely held religious beliefs pertaining to marriage or, um, you know, sex as assigned at birth across the board. So this is not a um, undue burden standard. This is an absolute standard. Government cannot penalize you in any way for those beliefs and also your beliefs towards marriage in general. So if you have a hotel and two individuals come and want a room and they're not married, you can say, nope, nope, you're not staying in the room together unmarried, you don't get service. So it's more than just same-sex marriage or transgender. It, it's anything relating to sex and relations based on a religious belief, you cannot be penalized. Is it an individual thing or actually, for example, if I'm the owner of the hotel, I tell all my employees, if anybody come here, we don't, don't know let yet. them. Okay. So I can imagine if the guy who's at the counter and say, hey, it just happened to me on duty today. And I'm yeah. personally against that. So I can still find other people to serve you. But if it's like, oh, I speak for the hotel, you cannot even stay in this hotel, no matter who check you in. That's going to be two very different things. Yeah. And it's so disruptive either way. So say I own the hotel and it's my clerk and my clerk says, I'm not going to serve you. And I'm sitting there saying, oh my God, I want to fire you. In the private sector, I still might be able to do it. But if say it's the public sector that I want to fire you. for, I can't. And now these people are like, oh my God, look at this. And now I'm, I'm stuck and I can't do anything. They have an absolute right. I can't even argue even I've exceeded even the heightened burden. It, there's, there's no burden analysis. It's like, I can't touch you. You are totally immune now. And that, that is just, so this was immediately struck down when it was passed at the district court judge, but then it got appealed to the fifth circuit and the fifth circuit, you could argue took an easy way out. Instead of addressing the issue on the constitutionality of the law, um, kicked it out saying the litigants didn't have standing to bring it yet. Um, so yeah. I haven't seen anything new filed yet. Um, you know, this is a few years old. 
but what if those kind of act uh, behaviors actually cause damage, cause actual damage? Are they responsible for that? Absolute immunity. Huh. You know, so this is where everybody saw the Mississippi laws and whoa, that, you know, th this whole thing that I talked about before, the Workplace Religious Freedom Act, you know, was advocating what I thought was just this radical change. This takes it to 11. I mean, th th this suddenly says now there are no exemptions. It's an absolute right. And, you know, and it applies to government too. So I looked at the law to see did they exempt out government? No. It applies to government too. You have an absolute right. Now, that being said, Mississippi is a little more homogenous with religious belief. Um, so I, I'm thinking you've, we've maybe not heard as much down there because most of the people are on board with it and support it. You know, most of the government employees all think the same. Hmm. The public. Um, if you're in one of these protected groups, you tend to keep your head low in Mississippi. Um, I was with the army assigned to Alabama for three years. It's, it's a different way of living down there. If you're in certain groups, you know your position in society. You generally don't make a lot of waves. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the nature... That's my question here. That is, like, for example, I kind of, as an individual person, I view it as a passive or aggressive, right? So back to the pronoun thing. If I ask the teacher to use a per per pronoun, but he refused to use it, I consider it to be aggressive. It's like, I'm asking you something, but you just yeah. refuse to do it, right? But what about, it's the other direction. That is, I don't want to do something, but they use their religious belief to force me, or at least, for example, I, I read in your, your book case, it's just like some teacher find that one of his students was gay, Potentially, he just sneak a a, a note into his him. pocket. Yeah, and yeah. just say, "Hey, this is insane." I just say, "Okay, I don't ask you anything." That's one thing I respect you, but please respect me too. It's just like leave me alone. So I kind of view these kind of two things differently. But what about the second case? If they something, for example, you were mentioned like my religion just requires me to post a certain kind of note mm -hmm. public and make sure everybody sees it, right? Which can be a disturbance to other people. For example, my thing is just, I, I don't want to see those kind of things. Yeah, the proselytizing. Um, and the proselytizing is hugely damaging because, you know, if you get that question or something, you're highly offended. Yeah. Um, the Indiana the state trooper case where repeatedly he, he, there have been complaints that when the state trooper pulled people over, he started engaging them and asking them if they'd been saved by Christ. Yep. And if they said, you know, no or whatever, he had pamphlets to the local church and stuff. And for me, if I had that, and as an aside, I got pulled over by the Indiana state police coming out to UWL to start my job um, <laughs> for a traffic stop. And the, they were different people. Um, but, so I might have some biases against Indiana. Anyway, um, but if you get that, that is highly offensive. One, it has nothing to do with me driving my moving truck. You know, what, why are you doing that? What, uh, you know, I don't want that from my police. And now you're starting to think, is that the Indiana State Police? So if he's doing it to me and doing it to others, 
then the bosses must know about it and they're okay with it. Are they telling him to do it? So, you know, this whole public perception now is like, whoa, this is creepy here. But then again, the, the concern is, you know, under the current law, I can say, you don't do that, and we're gonna fire you. But if the law changes, what's, what's, my, what's my quantifiable burden as the employer to that state trooper? You know, the state trooper handing you a pamphlet, it, it's, you know, it uses what, two more minutes of his time. But if he doesn't have another call to go to, I'm not losing, I'm not losing work performance. It's not costing, you know, I assume he's printing it himself. He's not doing it on government computers and stuff. I don't have a cost there. I've got an individual that's pissed, but they may not file a complaint. So I may never know. They, but they're telling all their friends what happened. And their friends are telling friends what happened. And I mean, if it's a police officer stopping me, I, I mean, whatever he needs to say, I have to listen. I yeah. don't want to say, hey, starting from now, my case is over. I'm going to drive away. I don't want to listen yeah. to nonsense. No. Yeah, it, it, it's a captive audience. You can't say, well, we were done with the, and part yeah. of his thing was, we were done with the transaction on the ticket. This was just voluntary. It's like, what? She, yeah, you really he, thought she was going to put it in drive he, and leave. Yeah, if he does it for 20 minutes, I think I'm just going to sit there for 20 minutes. Yeah. To, if he does it for two hour, hours, yeah. I'm going to sit there. Yeah. Especially if I'm of color or something, I'm not going to leave. You know, it's, it, it, it's just, it, but how do I, how do I quantify that for a court to say, you know, again, common sense says that has nothing to do with your job as a law enforcement officer. You shouldn't be doing it. If you take the ADA standard though, or take these standards, I have to quantify this super heightened burden, not some burden. I have to show a heightened burden. And his lawyer's gonna say, all right, so what, what is it? You know, she thinks less of him. It, you know, does that mean that if she's in an accident, she's not gonna call the Indiana State Police? No, she's gonna call the Indiana State Police. You know, it doesn't impact servicing. And that's the problem with these. And some of the other examples is the counter argument is the person got the service they wanted eventually. So it's not a serious burden. And that's, that's the real challenge with this is that for me, the burden is the diminished public perception of the agency. That is the significant burden. And no, I can't put a dollar sign on it. I can't, I can't put it on a temperature scale, thermometer or something. I just know that I suddenly now have a bunch of people that think way less of my law enforcement organization than they did yesterday. And tomorrow when I have an investigation and I got to go to that neighborhood and maybe knock on their door and ask them for their help, did you see anything? Do I have to worry about them being one of the people that thinks, you know, um, a religious zealot that hates, you know, I, I can't do that. I need to have that public welcome my officer and want to work with my officer. I can't be worried about this. And that's why I can't accommodate this stuff. You know, that's the argument that I make as the government lawyer trying to explain to the judges, we can't, we can't afford this diminished legitimacy. That's crazy because when you wear a uniform, or even you're an educator, when you say something, you don't just represent yourself. Yeah. So if you're in that position, you 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 kind of act under the authority of the whole public 
administrative organization behind you. That's why people trust you. That's why they listen to your thing. But now you're just saying like, I want to be, I want to use this kind of shadow power. Meanwhile, I want to do whatever I want. Yeah, I don't so want, you're, I don't you're want actually to pursuing them. your agenda. You're using the government yeah. machinery to, you know, present your agenda by saying, I'm not going to file your marriage certificate. What do you think of that? Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, especially in the public sector, it's just hard to imagine once this passed, like a lot of chaos is going to raise. And for a lot of situations, when you hear the story, you, I think people will feel less safe. They will feel less safe. Yeah. And, and I think it might be something where, you know, there's support for these changes. They go into place, people see it, and then it's, well, we made a mistake. Let's pull it back, you know. But then the damage is done. You know, it's just it's just a really, it's a good intention, but not well deliberated. And because of the nature of the topic, it's it, it, it sort of lends itself to rapid reaction. You know, accommodation good, protecting these individual rights is good, even though I'm non-religious. This is a fundamental thing as a U.S. citizen. We need to protect it for others. So I understand that gut reaction to say, this is good, you know. And, and I shouldn't have to sit there and try to figure out on my own, what does it really mean? You know, you hope that the elected representatives would be forthright and say, well, I got it. But the current system works. You know, that's what I argue in the book is that we have something in place that works. Now, there might be certain individual outcomes that people don't support and think, you know, they should have been accommodated, but on balance, it works. You know, you don't have the capacity necessarily as the general public to really know what this could mean um, across the board, um, especially when it's being weaponized to, to knock down policy. That, that's kind of my issue with this too, is that, you know, the, these rules have been on the books since the 60s, and we don't have any major litigation with this stuff until the last 10 years. You know, that, that's the frustrating thing is if you look at um, the, the different bases for which people file equal employment opportunity complaints, religion is tiny. It's, it's usually the smallest one, um, but it's growing because people are now getting the top cover from these um, legal advocacy organizations to say, hey, don't worry. You know, if you get in trouble at work, you know, refuse to do it. We need a test case. If you get in trouble, our full backing, you have us free legal services. We're going to fight this. It's not going to cost you a dime. It's just we need a plaintiff for our case. Um, so you're starting to see more of these cases because the, you know, these organizations are removing the individual risk. And they're using it, like I said, to attack larger policies of government. And it's less about the individual exercise of religion and more about how can I be a foot soldier to knock down this larger policy that I disagree with. So if I can get everybody in my office to refuse to file the same-sex marriage certificate, we're doing our part on behalf of good to stop evil it is kind of the logic behind this stuff. Yeah, so it's just a system trying to play with the rules, hopefully modify some of the rules, and then use it to achieve a certain kind of goal. Yeah. And uh, are we talking about a large group of people here? 
I don't think so. Okay. Problem is, you don't need a large amount of people. I mean, that, Once this thing, yeah, that's the frustration. Yeah. Is yeah. you know, um, we're talking about more than we have in the past because again, it's it's the the social change. You know, when you have such rapid social change, um, it's going to kick this up much more. So, when I was doing my research and writing, you know, it's about same sex marriage. So if you go back and think about the first time you really saw a gay couple on TV, um, you know, we're talking Will and Grace and Ellen in, you know, what, 90s, um, maybe late 80s, you started to see something in popular culture. So from the 80s to um, Obergefell in 2015, um, you know, we're talking a 30 year period where you've had rapid um, acceptance of same sex relationships and same sex marriage, 30 years. Look at the timeline on transgender. <laughs> We've gone from not even mentioning it on TV to, um, you know, transparent certain shows like on Amazon that. 2013 maybe to today seven years in seven years transgender rights have come what same-sex rights have done over 50 60 years you know they're not to the same to the same point but again it's it, it's light speed compared so to a conservative religious individual, you saw this evolution of gay rights, and now you're seeing transgender rights even faster. It's like, what's next? And, and they see it as just a total breakdown, almost a second coming type thing. So it's a very activated base because the speed velocity of social change is like nothing that it was before. Um, it just keeps getting faster and faster. So as they feel more threatened, combined with legal advocacy organizations that rely on contributions, and this is a part of the problem with this that is kind of unfortunate that really muddies this, is that these organizations rely on big-time donors. The only way you get big-time donors is by getting big-time wins. The only way you get big-time wins is by getting a lot of cases. So the more cases you have, the more likely a big time win will surface out of it. And these organizations are just beating the hell out of each other to try to get as many cases so they can be, you know, Alliance Defending Freedom is like the king of the mountain right now. And there's Beckett Foundation and Pacific Legal, and they're all fighting over these big cases. They want to have the next Hobby Lobby. So then they send the fundraising letter out see what we got for you. These other guys didn't get anything for you. We got this huge case that everybody's talking about. See how the liberals are so upset? It's because we're such good lawyers and then they get the money. So then that puts it even harder on the next group. All right, you know, go say yes to 50 more cases. Go find some more people. So unfortunately, this 
is kind of business-based entrepreneurship too, of trying to gin up more cases to get the landmark case, to get the notoriety to say, yeah, you're the go-to group, not them. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's all feeding into this. It's interesting to see how, how to say the, the, the benefits of different groups fighting each other and eventually what's coming out of that may not be something actually everybody wants. Right. Interesting. That, that's, that's really interesting. You can see a lot of things, not just the thing we talk about today, but a lot of things just were born in this way. <laughs> wow. I'll see entrepreneurship. Interesting. That's really interesting. Well, we have been talking for one hour and a half. I think that's enough information for today. But I, I just want to say like, I mean, without listening to this, I won't even pay attention to the topic. Even if you just tell me like, really just, are you crawl religious accommodation? I would definitely say yes. I, and what's in my mind is probably in everybody's mind. It's just like, yeah, you need to actually take a day off or half a day off every Friday, or you need some private space or even like certain kind of food or appeal, appeal or anything like that. Of course, we want you to be happy in our society, in our uh, organization. But now I think my biggest takeaway is um, number one, we need to clearly associate this to the administrative legitimacy. And the second thing is just like, there are so many cases, if we don't actually go there and find the cases brought about, up by you, we won't see the other side of the potential damage of, you know, what are you really trying to support here? Like pro religious uh, accommodation. So yeah, I think I have a, I have a more all around view of this and thanks to you. I think that was, that was really fun. Thank you for joining uh, us today. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate what you're doing with the series in general, but hopefully bringing a little more light to show that this is way more nuanced than people might think because there's such emotional overtones to all of this. It makes it tough to discuss, tough to discuss civilly with many audiences tough sometimes to really want to play devil's advocate because you, you so do want to support it because it makes such sense yep. on a yep. base feel obviously why why do we need to talk about it is kind of thing you know that's what the proponents are relying on that you will have that reaction of this is such a no-brainer why do we have to talk um to, to hopefully some someone sees this so they know next time when they hear something like this they say well wait a minute this is, this is a little more complicated than just you know protecting someone's existing rights so again thank you so much for this opportunity thank you